0: Well, today we're starting a new series um, called The Journey of Faith, and faith is that. It is a journey. There, If you are a person of faith today in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a moment in time where you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, and then you began a journey with Him where you have been getting to know Him better, you have learned things, you've probably had some stumbles and some failures, I bet, along the way. And it's this journey. It's not just, sometimes we think about faith kind of like, you know, there was this time back when I was 12, or there was this time when I was 22, or back last year, or whatever it might have been, where I put my faith in Jesus. And we think about it as this one-time experience, when really that's not what it is. It begins at a moment in time. But faith continues throughout our life. And if you're like me, your faith has ups and it has downs. You've had good times and you've had bad times and you've had times where you've had these spiritual victories in your life and you've had miserable failures. And that's you'll find out, is pretty common uh, in the Christian experience and pretty common throughout the Bible. And we're going to be looking uh, over the next several weeks at a guy named Abraham, Abraham is likely the most famous person in the history of the Bible, not named Jesus. Uh three faiths claim to trace their roots back to Abraham. You've got the Jews, you've got the Christians, and you've got Muslims. All have uh uh would look to Abraham as a spiritual leader. So he's not a controversial figure at all. Um he's uh <laughs> jest and um he is a very famous historic Figure that really, a lot of times, when we look at characters in the Bible, he's a guy we skip a lot of times for some reason. But when you get to the New Testament, they talk about Abraham a lot. James talks about Abraham. Hebrews talks about Abraham. The Apostle Paul in Romans talks about Abraham. Time and time again, biblical authors reference Abraham. And here's what they usually reference about Abraham his faith his faith. The one thing Abraham is known for more than anything else in the Bible is his faith. In a sense, it's like he's the father of faith in a sense in the way we think about it. Because when we, you're reading the Bibles, we're going to talk about it here in just a minute, then you get to Genesis 12 and all of a sudden there's this man in Genesis 12 through Genesis 22 who believes God and God does this great Work through. But what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to look at several passages in Genesis. Is that the hero of Abraham's story is not Abraham. A lot of times we look at a guy like Abraham and we use the term hero of the faith. And I'm not taking anything away from Abraham, but he's not even the hero of his own story. What we're going to see this morning is the great thing about Abraham was not Abraham, and it wasn't even really Abraham's faith, it was the person his faith was in. There was a hero to Abraham's story that was outside of Abraham that wasn't Abraham. And so that's what we're going to focus this morning is we're going to focus more on the God of Abraham because it's not so much that you have faith that's important, it's who is your faith in that's really important. And that's what's really important about Abraham. Not so much his faith, but who his faith was directed towards. So when you get to Genesis, and we about two years ago, we went through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So I'm going to give you a a, 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 a very snapshot uh, review. When you're in Genesis, it's a very important book in the Bible, and the first 11, really 12 chapters of Genesis are really critical to understanding the rest of the Bible. To be honest, the rest of the other 66 books in the Bible make not a lot of sense without the first 11, 12 chapters of Genesis. Sin, uh, promise of the Messiah, faith, God beginning a people, all that stuff starts in those first 12 chapters of Genesis, and then after that everything begins to fall in place. So they're very critical. And so when you open the Bible, you learn about creation, right? The creation account there in the first three chapters, first two chapters of Genesis. And then when you get to Genesis 3, this good, beautiful God uh, creation God has made uh, experiences something that we now call sin. Adam and Eve in the garden. And we talk about that all the time here because everything, a lot of all of our problems go back to that moment where Adam and Eve decided to disobey God. And so Adam and Eve disobey God and sin comes into the world, and the world's a mess, and it gets more sinful and more sinful, and so God decides to send a flood, right? A flood, and so God sends a flood, but God, in His grace and mercy, saves one man and His family, a man named Noah, who God decides, I'm going to save a remnant. You see that a lot in the Bible. God says, I'm going to pull this one aside, I'm going to save a remnant, I'm not going to destroy everybody, it's wicked, and they, we all deserved it, But he said, you know, I'm going to save a remnant. And God sends this flood. And he saves Noah and his family. When Noah and his family get off the ark, right? Noah and his family get off the ark. God tells them that they need to spread out. They need to multiply. They need to fill the earth. Because that was the original plan from creation. That God would create people made in his image. And that they would steward the earth. And so he tells Noah and his family to go out and do that. But then we get to chapter 11 of Genesis. And something has gone wrong. Rather than do that, even though... Humanity's got this second chance, this new lease on life. What do they do? Rather than scatter about and fill the earth, they're gathered together in one place, putting all their wisdom and knowledge together to try to make a great name for themselves by building a tower to heaven, is the picture we see. And their motive is greatness. Their motive is to make a great name for themselves. And God says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so God decides to basically make them all speak different languages, confuse them. And so, they, so he forces them, in a sense, to do what he's told them to do, and to scatter. And so then they go and scatter across the earth. And when we leave off in Genesis chapter 11, things look pretty dark. Because you've got Noah, the one guy, God saves him and his family. And then from his line, you can always trace a righteous line, or a line that's following God throughout the Bible. And from his line, you get this, uh, his son, Shem. And the Bible traces his line for us. But you get down to the end of his line, there's a man named Terah. And Terah is an idolater. And jo- the book of Joshua makes that very clear to us. And he lives out in Ur, the land of the Chaldeans. And his, him and his family, Ur is the moon god. Uh, and and Terah, I believe, if I remember right, means moon. And, um, and he's just given over to idolatry. His family's given over to idolatry. He's got a son named Abram. And his son is about 75 years old at this time and has no children. Genesis 11 introduces, who we know as Abraham, whose name was originally Abram, introduces us to him in that fashion. This great man of faith, who all these faiths look to, and who who Christianity can even trace our roots back to, this great man of faith was a big fat zero. Okay? Idolatrous pagan, living out in the middle of nowhere, 75 years old, no real hope. I mean, in their day and age, I mean, just to not hoping and praying children and not to be able to have, in their day and age, that was just just the culture of it, I mean, was just a big deal. And so here's Abraham, 75 years old, no children, an idolater, and then Genesis 12 happens. So look with me at Genesis 12. We're going to read three different passages out of 12, 15, and 17 this morning. Kind of get a big picture of Abraham. So look, at, look with me at Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, right, Abram. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel, and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west, and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, Dr. Tom Chaney a couple of weeks ago did a great job preaching Genesis 12 too, but we want to, we, we can't really start with Abraham without starting there. And so we're going to look at three different passages to get a picture of what God is doing in Abraham's life and ultimately in Abraham's life. Notice in Genesis twelve one, you start in chapter. Abraham's story really starts in chapter eleven. He's an idolatry. He's living out in the middle of nowhere. Um, he's, he's 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 his his family who should be following the Lord, who should be following Yahweh, right? Are not? This Joshua tells us that later on they are, they've given in to the idols around them in that land. But then in chapter twelve verse one, now the Lord said to Abram. That Lord is all capital letters in your Bible and on your screen there. And when the Bible does that, it's pointing to the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. Alright, that is the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, eternally self-existent God. When God reveals himself to Moses over in Exodus and tells him what his name is, it's this, it's it's a version of this name. I am who I am, he says. Yahweh. That's, that's the connection here. And so this is a big deal. This is, this is not just anyone. This is Yahweh. This is the self-existent, covenant-keeping, not promise-breaking, but promise-making and promise-keeping God, speaking to a nobody. The great I am, who could have washed his hands of creation, who could have just said, you know what, forget it, I've given you another chance. Instead, we see him communing with, speaking to, working, and choosing a sinful man to do a work through. And this is really our story. This is the story of the Bible. A bunch of nobodies that get to commune with the great I Am. Think about that when you pray and when you open your Bible and when you read it. The eternal God, covenant making, covenant keeping, self-existent God is speaking to you, right? And so that had to be amazing for Abraham and it should be amazing for us. And this calling uh, we see here in Genesis 12.1 is not just a big deal for Abram. This is a big deal for humanity because God is going to start a people. He is about to bring about the renewal of all things. He's working to fulfill the promise he had made to Eve many years before. In Genesis 3.15, he said, one of your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. I'm, I'm, in other words, I'm going to defeat Satan. What Satan has started, I'm going to defeat him. I'm going to undo it. I'm going to reverse this curse. I'm going to, all this is going to be undone. Satan is ultimately going to fall. Because one of your offspring is going to do it. And it's looking pretty grim for the offspring of Eve until God calls a man named Abram. So this is a big deal, but not just for Abram. This is a big deal for you and for me. God tells him to leave everything, to leave his country and to leave his, to, to, to leave his father's house and to go. The things that make Abram, Abram, he says, in other words. But all of his identity, all of his security, leave it behind and to do what he's called him to do. And look at the promise that he gives him. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to, in turn, make you a blessing to others. Bless those who bl- those that bless you are going to be blessed. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And that's key. Because the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is Jesus. It's Jesus. And we're going to see that here in just a moment. But that, that, ultimately, from Abraham, you get David. And from David, ultimately, you're going to get Jesus. And so, the, that's the ultimate picture that we see here. Now, the church exists today. North Park exists today. Churches all over the world exist today because God made a promise to a man named Abram who didn't deserve any promises from God. Do you understand that? You sit. If you're a Christian today, you're sitting in here under the teaching of God's Word because of this promise. You say, does the Old Testament matter? Does something that could happen to a man named Abraham matter? Yes, because you're here today and you're hearing God's Word preached and it all connects back to a promise that God made to a sinful pagan man way back then when God called him to Himself in faith. Notice, it's always been God's plan to bless His people, to have a people, to bless the people, to multiply His people, and to ultimately make His blessing, make His people a blessing to others. We're never more like God's people and like what God wants us and designed us to be than when His people are multiplying and blessing others. And we're never least like God's people than when we aren't multiplying and we're not a blessing to others. This is. This is 1A. This is this is the very beginning of what it means to look like to be the people of God. Multiply. Be a blessing. And by the way, this is a side note. This is for free. Right? This is this is you know, this for free. God blesses people to bless people. Right? God's blessing in our lives, all the way from the very beginning, Genesis 12, when we see God blessing this man, the purpose was not for just for the sake of Abram. He blessed him to be a blessing, and we see that throughout the Bible. That's what God does. Now, so in Genesis 11, humanity is trying to make a great name for themselves, and then in Genesis, and God says no! Right? And he, and he, and he, and he thwarts their plans. In Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abraham and says, I'm gonna make your name great. God refuses to let humanity be the hero of our own story. He won't do it. That's never been His purpose. And Genesis twelve is a story of grace before it's ever a story of faith. We we look at Abram and we think about his faith, and we should. We've called the series "The Journey of Faith." But without God's grace, there's no faith. We should not know. We should. We would not know of Abraham and his faith if it were not for the grace of God in his life at that time. God in His grace chose a sinner through which to do a great work and God continues to do that in 2016 just like He was doing it back then. This is where the journey of faith begins with a desperate person, a sinful person, and a gracious God. Every faith journey begins just like it did here for Abram in Genesis 12. Then we see Abram pack up and obey God and the journey begins. Now it's going to have ups and downs we're going to see over the next several weeks but his journey's on the way. Now go with me to Genesis 15. Hold your place there. Genesis 15. Flip over with me a couple of pages. Be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. It's a little bit of reading but we're going to read the chapters. So follow along with me. This is one of the most important chapters. I've said this already this morning. Another one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. When you see that stuff in the Old Testament, boy, it should get your attention. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son. Love that language there. Because we're going to see that language again over in Genesis 22. And it's very reminiscent of what we're going to see in John 3.16. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Important verse. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, "Oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Things are getting weird here in Genesis chapter 15. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the bird's... In half, And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward... They shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. A lot of sights in there, right? Now, what's going on in Genesis 15? Well, it says all these things occurred after these things. Well, this is mainly pointing to chapter 14. Abraham has this big spiritual victory. He goes out and in this battle, he defeats these kings and does this great big thing. And this one king wants to pay him for helping him out and for rescuing his people. And basically give him what kind of, in that day, would have just been his earned right um, from the battle. And Abraham said, or Abram says, "No, I don't want to take that because I don't want you, King of Sodom, to ever be able to say that you made me rich, right? He was trusting the Lord, the Lord had told him to do something, he wanted God to get all the glory. And so when we leave off in chapter fourteen, now there's been some of these some valleys at the end to chapter twelve and but when we leave off in chapter fourteen, Abraham's spiritual mountaintop, so God comes to him, and God's encouraging him in a sense too. Fear not. I am your shield and your reward will be great. I know you didn't take the reward for King of Sodom, but don't worry. I'm going to reward you, right? God's encouraging him. And you would think from that we would see Abraham, well, thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, that this is great. You'd think you'd have a little church moment. But Abraham said, verse 2, now any time you see that, usually it's not good. All right, When God says something and then there's but in your name, usually not, there shouldn't be a but. An and would be good, but this is the wrong conjunction to follow God speaking and in your name, right? It means you're not responding exactly the best way. Abraham said, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is going to be Eliezer of Damascus. he's brought in like the servant, and he's saying, he's going to get all my stuff. I'm going to have to leave everything to him. You said you're going to make me a great nation. Remember chapter 12. You're going to make me a great nation. I don't even have a son. How am I going to be a nation if I'm not even a family? If I can't even have children, how are they going to make me a great nation? And what he's doing here is he's pressing a little bit here. And some, you know, you might even say he's kind of like in this place where you have to be careful. I don't want to um, say more than what we. Abraham, I do believe, was battling a temptation here that we all battle. I'm not saying he's given into it, but we battle this temptation when things are going well for us to kind of say, So, God, where's mine? Right? We kind of feel a little entitled not saying that's necessarily what's happened, but I, I think it's a temptation that's possible. Where's my promise? You made a promise to me. And just because you're faithful to God, by the way, doesn't mean God owes you anything. Because God keeps His promises that He does not work on your calendar. He's not sinking your calendar in His calendar. He could care less about that, really. That's, he's got his own thing going. And Abraham's going to learn that over time. So God says to him, He says, No. That guy's not going to be your heir. You will have a son. Your very own son will be your heir. That's my promise. And he says, look toward heaven and number the stars. It gives him a visual illustration because Abraham needs some encouragement. So he takes him out and says, I not you look up at the stars. And if you can count all them, you can count all your descendants. Now what want you think about this. So Abraham goes outside and he looks up and he sees the stars. And he's it's like, I can't count all them things. You know what visually he's looking at when he looks at those stars, what the visual illustration is? You if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As one, as one pastor said, when Abraham was counting the stars, he was counting you. Church, we are the fulfillment, in a sense, of God's, of God's promise on the other end of Jesus here as millions of people have come to faith in Christ, as God has people all over the world and the descendants of Abraham. Is, we we learn this, right? And growing up, in, you know, when we are little. Father Abraham had many sons, right? Remember that one? You work your arms, you work your legs, right? And I am one of them, right? Through faith in Christ. And so... Number the stars. If you're able to number them, shall shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, verse 6, and he counted it to him as righteousness. As righteousness. The idea here is that Abraham put his faith in God. And God counted his faith as righteousness. Before he ever proved that he was righteous, before his righteousness was proved out, and shown and displayed as it clearly would be in Genesis 22 with Isaac being offered on the altar. Before that ever happens, God is crediting it to him as righteousness. And we see, oh, we're see, we going to see here in a minute that that's going to be a big deal when we get over to the New Testament. But Abraham wants some proof. How do I know you're going to give me all this land? You're saying you're going to leave it to my ancestors but I'm going to be dead and gone. How do I know they're going to get this land? Because that's part of the promise there was going to be a land. And by the way, just the, man, the world revolves from this point on, you see the world just kind of revolving around things happening in the Middle East. And he says, I do I know you're going to give me this land. And then this weird scene happens, right? Go get these animals. And he gives him these animals. And Abraham comes back and cuts them all in half and falls out asleep and and a flaming torch passes through. All this weird stuff's happening. What is going on? Well, there's a couple interpretations. And one is probably the, the most well-known, and it kind of depends on what's happening here, but one is taken from that day. In that day, the way people would make a covenant, covenant means to cut, right? And so when somebody would make a covenant, a very common thing they would do is they would take an animal, let's say, and they would split it in two and they would make their promise and they would say, and they would walk between the animal, right? Maybe even with their robe. So their blood would even get on their robe. And they're basically what they're saying is, if I don't keep my end of the deal, May it be unto me as it is to these animals. Like they're calling a curse down on themselves. Cursed be me. May it be unto me as it is to these animals if I don't do what I say I'm going to do. And so what would happen is so me and you were striking a deal, I would walk through the animals and you say, may it be unto me. And you would walk through the animals. And so bad news if somebody doesn't keep their end of deal. Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces. He's asleep. You can't do anything, and a fire pot and a flaming a torch and some and a fire pot it goes this smoke fire goes through these pieces that's all that goes through. And then you get right later on in the Bible and you see these are symbols for the presence of God. You see God's people coming out of Egypt and being guided by these things as they go through the Exodus because they are symbols of God's presence with His people. Who made, who walked through the pieces? Who is taking responsibility for fulfilling the promise? God is. What's Abraham doing? Snoozing. Who's this on? God. God is taking responsibility. Just like. A couple of, several thousand years later, Jesus would go to the cross alone. And here, God walks through the pieces alone. So one very possible and likely interpretation is that's what's happening here. It's not possible it's a combination of things, though. Because these do the presence of God, it's possible that these animals, and especially the birds of prey that Abraham is showing off, represent the enemies that God's people will have. And we'll see that especially with Egypt, that will come against God's people, and that God's presence will ultimately be with them. God makes, He tells them, right? You see this prophecy there. He says, they're gonna be, they're gonna be enslaved for 400 years, in a land not their home, their own, and that I'm gonna bring them out. He gives that promise. And so it's a, it's a combination of these things, or maybe one or the other. It's, It's a hard text, but here's what we know. The point the big point is God's presence with his people and God taking responsibility for his promise. Only God walks through the pieces. Now in chapter 17, look over there with you, chapter 17 when Abram, was 99 years old. So we've jumped ahead now, right? He was 75, now he's 99. We've covered 24 years here this morning. He's 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your names shall be Abraham. Your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into... Nations and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for the everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, circumcision is ultimately, it's, it's an outward symbol of the promise. It's, it's not the covenant, it's the symbol of the covenant. And so, what God is saying here is that this is going to be a symbol to me, that you're my people, and to everybody else. And it's a reminder to you the who you belong to and the promise I've made you. Kind of like with, the, with Noah's covenant, we get the rainbow, right? And so, that's what's going on there in Genesis 17. And so, when we leave Abraham in Genesis 16, it's on the heels of a major failure. He's 86 years old at the end of chapter 16. And what has happened is he has grown impatient with the Lord. His wife especially has grown impatient waiting on the son, And she says, hey, why don't you go and have a baby basically to put it in our vernacular with our maid. Why don't you go with the maid and have a baby? Because and then, and that'll kind of be like me giving you a baby. And Abraham, being the thick-headed man that he was, goes, sure, sounds like a great idea. And so he goes over and does that and then wonders why his wife's mad at the end of it, okay? Uh, so she's like frustrated and says something kind of crazy. And he's like, okay. And he goes and then like she runs them out of town, right? Because she's just like alright about it at the end of it. Didn't go well. We could all You're reading it. You can see that coming as you're reading the story. Abraham, this is a bad idea. And so, but he goes with it. What's really happening there? He's grown in faith. This is not God's plan. It was never God's plan for him to go start helping him and detouring And So you, then there's like 13 years of nothing from chapter 16 to chapter 7. 17. We don't know what's going on. What is Abraham thinking at this point? Abram thinking at this point? Is God done with me? Or how, is this the promise? Maybe I figured out a way to make this happen. What's going on? We don't know. All we know is that Abram is messed up. Again, by the way. He disrespects God, he disrespects his wife, not going after God's best. And then God speaks to Abram, not about who Abram is, but about who I he is. He says, I am God Almighty. If the future salvation of the world depended on Abram and his character, we'd all be in trouble, but it didn't. Abram's story is first and foremost about God. God says, I am God Almighty. And then he tells Abram how he wants him to live. Right? It's a response to who God is. Notice God comes to Abram after his failure. He introduces himself as the Almighty, addresses again the covenant, and promises to multiply Abram greatly. And Abraham, Abram falls on his face before God. And that's how you respond, by the way, to God and to God's grace. How many times have you failed God, if you're a believer this morning, and then opened your Bible and found out, you know, he's the same God he was before you failed him. His promises haven't changed to you. His character hasn't changed. He's still the same. You might not be what you should be. You might not be where you should be. But he hasn't moved one inch. And that's what Abram finds out here. He's done some things he shouldn't do. He's went some places he shouldn't went. But God's still the same. His promises are still the same. He's still being faithful. And then God promises to multiply Abram greatly. And he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Now here's the key. Abram's name meant meant exalted father. He was 75 didn't have any kids And his mama named him Exalted Father And so life was like A cruel joke For Abram and his culture And then So he's all these years He's probably telling people God's made me a promise God's made me a promise So all these years I've passed 24 years now And God comes to him And says well I'm going to up to Annie A little bit I'm also Your name's going to be Abraham Not just Exalted Father But Father of a multitude Isn't that cool? How God does that. He takes a name that's been a cruel joke and he ties it to his promise for him. Now, what do we learn about God from these passages? This It's very obvious that God's the hero here. God's the one that's... Abraham's not the perfect person. God's the one who's perfect. God's the one who's faithful. God's the one who's working. First thing we learn about God is that God in His grace rescues sinners and uses them for His glory. That's number one. If you don't take anything else away from Abraham's story, understand that. God is a God of grace. He rescues sinful people and He uses them for His glory. Abraham was a nobody. Somehow through Abram, somehow Abram, God working through him, Abram ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He ends up being quoted and talked about throughout the New Testament as this example of faith. Why? God's grace. God's grace. All through the Bible, God does this. Noah before Abraham, he was no perfect man. Things didn't, even, didn't, things didn't go well for him after the flood. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And a meager she- shepherd boy before, when God decided to make him king. The Bible is not primarily a book of stories about great men and great women who did great things for God. It's primarily a story about a gracious God. Who does great and mighty things even in spite of sinful people. And no one's too far gone this morning. If you wonder if you or someone you love is too far gone, just look at Abram's story. Not Abraham's story. Abram's story. The dude out in Ur, right? (laughs) The dude out living in the middle of nowhere worshiping idols. God chose and changed Abraham by His grace and God can change you. And we see that transformation happening over the course of His life. You see that all through the Bible. In Mark chapter 5, you remember the story? Uh, you might be familiar with the story of this demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. And there's a man, I mean, he's filled with what the Bible says is a legion of demons, many demons. He's running around without his clothes on. He's cutting himself. They're chaining him down to get him to leave people breaking the chains. I mean, he's just like a crazy guy running around town. Nobody wants to have anything to do with it. And Jesus shows up on the scene, casts the demons out. Next time we see the guy, he's seated politely at Jesus' feet saying, Teach me more, Lord. Can I go with you? and be a witness, you know, and Jesus actually sends him back to his hometown to say, hey, go show everybody what the Lord's done for you. You're going to be a witness for me. All through the Bible, we've got stories of God changing hopeless people by His grace. The Apostle Paul, we talk about all the time, wrote much of the New Testament, was the greatest persecutor of the church in the first century. Our surest picture, though, of God's grace to us is that he has sent us, Jesus. you know over in Genesis 22 God says to Abram, Abraham, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed He's really getting specific now. we're not just talking about offsprings we're talking about one particular offspring who's going to possess the gate of his enemies and one particular offspring that all the nations are going to be blessed from. And then the Apostle Paul interprets it, or interprets it for us in Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Right? He is the, the ultimate fulfillment, the greatest blessing that has come from Abraham. God in His grace used Abraham to be the lineage through which would come to Christ. And God in His grace has sent the Christ... Jesus, to save me and you. And if you want to grow in your understanding of God's grace, just as Abraham looked forward to his coming, you need to look back at the fact that he's already come. It is the greatest picture. He is the greatest picture of God's grace towards us. Number two, second thing we learn about Abraham, is God takes responsibility for his promises. God doesn't make promises willy-nilly. He keeps them. We live in a culture when people regularly and habitually break their word, word, a promise means nothing today, right? Whether it's in marriage vows or whether it's from political leaders or whether it's from your boss at work, people make promises and people don't keep promises very often. In fact, we're more shocked when people are people of their word and they keep their promise, it seems like. We're like, wow, they said that and they did it. We're more shocked about that nowadays in our culture than we are when, when people break them. But God's not like that. God keeps His promises and is faithful to His word, but He doesn't work as we said earlier on our time clocks. Abraham had to learn this over time, and we do too. He's He's going to keep His promises, but He's got His own time frame. There are things that you will not taste, Christian, until glory. Your best life's not now; it's just not. If it is, pitiable are we? Our, our best life is yet to come. I can promise you, it is yet to come. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for His people. God kept His promise to Abraham, and God will keep His promise to you. And the best part of what God promised Abraham happened long after Abraham died. And the best things that God has promised you, you will not receive until way later. Or after you're dead and gone to be with the Lord. Or until the Lord comes back. If you get discouraged and you need reassurance that God's going to keep his promises in his word, we look to Jesus once again, second Corinthians 120 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Paul's saying, when you look back at the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God's promises to His people, they find their yes, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so I'm telling you that if you want to know that God's going to keep His promises in His word and his New Testament to you, you need to look to Jesus, right? He is where God's promises find their. Yes. Number three, God is committed to his people. He's committed to his people. I love the picture in Genesis 17 of how the last thing we see from Abraham, or Abram at that time, is a mess up. And the next thing we see from God is him being faithful. Warren Wisby said, We aren't saved by keeping promises to God, but believing God will keep his promises to us. Aren't you glad we're not saved by keeping our promises? I mean, you made promises to God you didn't keep. But God always keeps His promises. Faith is about God keeping, believing God's going to keep His promises. It's not about you keeping yours. God shows time and again throughout Abraham's life that He is committed to His people. Chapter twelve: I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great. Make you a blessing. Chapter fifteen: Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Chapter seventeen: I am going to multiply you. He refers to the covenant as His covenant, not our covenant, my covenant. He says with you, God chose the people. He blesses a people. He blesses the world through a people. And God protects his people, rewards his people, and God does multiply his people. Throughout the story of Abraham, God is faithful even when Abraham is not. Because God's working to save and build people. You see, cultures change, government change, kingdoms grow up, and then they fall down. And throughout the history of the world, the church is still there. Flourishing in parts of the world that it should be snuffed out. Why is that? Because Christians are so great. No, because God is committed to His people. God is building a people. And God is committed to you, believer. He's committed to you. Just as He walked through those animal pieces and not Abraham, so He's also shown His commitment to you because Christ went through the cross for you. You didn't have to go to that cross. You deserve to go to that cross. Jesus went to the cross for us and paid our sin debt for us. God is committed to us and is the prime example of that is Jesus. Now, here's the thing. So if God is gracious and rescues sinners, if God's a God who keeps promises and doesn't break His word, and if God's a God who uh, is committed to you to the end, how do you respond to a God like that? Well, the same way Abraham did. You believe Him and you obey Him. And you're going to hear those two words over and over again probably for the next few weeks. That is the theme of the whole thing. You believe God, you obey God. you got to believe Him. When the, it says in Genesis 15, 6, he believed the Lord and counted it to Him as righteous. Why did Abraham leave all that he knew in chapter 12 to go and follow God's plan? Because he believed God. Abraham's life was a life of faith. He believed and trusted all he said. Because he believed God, He believed anything God said. Right? Because he believed the person. Because he believed God. Because he believed in Him. He believed whatever God told him. Because of his personal faith in God. Romans 4 shows us that Abraham is a type of us. A a picture for us of a believing person. Romans 4, 23-25 says, the word, But the words, quote, It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Listen to this. Those words we just read, they weren't just written for Abraham but for ours, for yours, mine. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Just as Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that He died in our place for our sin, that He rose from the dead, God credits it to our account as righteousness. We get Jesus' as righteousness, the righteous life He lived, even though we're wicked, God credits it to us, to our account as righteousness. God has always worked. People always talk about Were people in the Old Testament saved by works? And people in the New Testament saved by faith? No. Everybody's always been saved by grace, number one, and everybody's always been saved through faith. In the Old Testament, they looked forward. Abraham's looking forward to God keeping his promise. David's believing God's going to keep his promise. They're looking forward to the fact that the Messiah would come. They're believing God's going to keep his promise. We look back and believe he did. That's the difference. They believe He would keep His promise. We believe He has kept His promise. We're both looking at Jesus just from two different angles. Faith in Christ. Faith in God. And secondly, obedience. Obedience is the product of faith. In fact, because Abraham believed God, he obeyed God. When we go over to Hebrews 11, 8-10, the Bible tells us it is by faith that Abraham obeyed. How did he obey? He obeyed by faith faith. His faith moved him to obedience. His obedience didn't bring about his faith. His faith moved him to obedience. It is our faith that drives our obedience. If you believe God, if you've, in other words, really trusted in Christ, your life will have evidence and that evidence is obedience. Obedience is not a bargaining chip with God to get what you want. It's living in response to who God is. When God tells Abraham to obey him in chapter fifteen, what is, or in chapter seventeen? What does he say? He says, "I am God Almighty." Now you do this, right? It's so we living in response to who God, who we believe God to be. Abraham's faith started, and his obedience started first with hearing God speak. God said to Abraham, "Go, I'm going to do this," and Abraham went. He believed, and therefore he obeyed, and first he heard. And the same pattern follows in the New Testament. We hear God's Word. We hear the good news of the Gospel. We believe it. And God transforms us into a people that will obey Him. And sometimes obedience is hard. We're not perfect at it. We fail. Imagine leaving behind what Abraham left behind. I imagine it wasn't easy for Abraham in those days. We don't obey God because it's easy. We obey God because we believe God. We believe God. And if you believe Him, Why wouldn't you obey right? Let me ask you this morning. Are there areas of disconnect between your faith and your obedience? Between what you say you believe about God and how you live in response to that. If you believe God this morning, do you obey God with your sexuality? Do you obey God in your covenant? Do you obey God with how you parent? with how you work, you obey God with your finances. See, we talk a lot about trusting God in these areas. Here's how I know if you trust God in those areas. You obey Him in those areas. Obedience is the fruit of our faith. If we really believe, if we're really trusting Him, I can know because it's going to bear the fruit of obedience. You say, well, what if I'm someone who just doesn't ever obey God, but I've got a lot of faith in God? The Bible says your faith is worthless. It says it's a non-saving faith. Faith bears the fruit of obedience. Not perfect obedience, but progressive obedience, but intentional obedience. So let me ask you, believer, are there areas that disconnect this morning in what we say we believe about God and how we trust and obey Him in our lives? If you're struggling to obey God in an area today, ask yourself, what do you really believe about God? The way we motivate ourselves to greater obedience is not pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but reminding ourselves of who God is. When God needed to pull Abraham along, what did God do? He revealed Himself to Abraham and said, This is who I am. This is my promise to you. Now you go and do this. And so when we need to be motivated to a bit greater obedience, we go and get another look at who God is in His Word. Maybe today, you need to begin your journey of faith. It has to begin somewhere. If you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you trusted Jesus as Lord and as Savior, I want to encourage you to do that today. Maybe there's never been a time where you return from your sin and embrace Christ and what He's done on the cross to save you. Faith has to begin. It's a journey, and it starts with understanding who God is, putting your faith in our gracious God in Christ. Maybe today you're a believer, but there's areas of disconnect between Your faith and your obedience. Areas that you need to deal with God. What you need is to spend time with God. What you need is to look to God. To look to God's promises and how faithful God is and let that motivate and drive you to greater faithfulness. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I would love to talk with you about that. But even right where you sit, you can run to Christ in faith right now. You can call out to Him. The Bible says if you'll turn from your sin and embrace Christ and what He's done on the cross and dying for your sin, bearing the wrath of God, paying your sin debt and rising from the dead, that if you'll trust Him, if you'll turn from your sin and just believe on Him by faith, right it'll be credited to you as righteousness. You can believe today and be saved. I'd love to talk with you about that. You can mark that on your connection card at the end. You can come find me after the service or during this prayer time. I'd love to pray with you about that. If you're here today and you're a believer and maybe you're wrestling with some areas of obedience in your life like we all do from time to time, let me encourage you to pause and take some time to consider who God is. He's the hero of your story. And He's the hero of your obedience. If you want to be motivated to greater obedience in your life, you need to continually look at God. At Christ. At who He is. And let that, let God use that to build your faith and that will build your obedience as you trust Him.